1.1, the silver that brought about a golden age. Welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana White, amateur historian, Loki enthusiast, and lover of all things Tolkien. If this is your first time tuning in, I invite you to check out all the episodes I've done thus far, starting with my series on the historiography of Shakespeare's plays. Today, I open at the close. 20 points to Slytherin if you get that reference. Meaning, today, I will begin to talk about the last of the three generals I chose to profile in this series I've been calling The Lives of Three Generals. So far, I've discussed the life and times of the Roman general and politician Julius Caesar and the Japanese shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu, comparing and contrasting not only their skill at arms, but also their character as men in the socio-political eras they lived in. I've gone from 1st century BC Rome to 14th century Japan, and now I will take you to 19th century South America where the temperatures and passions are high and one man will take on the might of the Spanish Empire and transform the Western Hemisphere forever. Simón José Antonio de la Santísima Trinidad Bolívar Palacios Ponte Blanco. That's a lot of name for a man who only stood 5'6", but as Jedediah Springfield once said, a noble heart embiggens the smallest man. And one thing Simon Bolivar had in abundance was heart. Simon Bolivar, called El Libertador, went from being a callow youth traipsing through Napoleonic Europe looking for love and purpose to a grief-hardened battle commander, populist politician, staunch abolitionist, and uniter of men who upended the power structure of Spanish America from 1808 until his death in 1830. Like the two generals before him, Simón Bolívar was born into a wealthy, aristocratic Criollo family in Caracas, now the capital city of Venezuela, and then the capital of the captaincy general of the Viceroyalty of Venezuela, an administrative district of colonial Spain. Bolívar's lineage was impeccable by colonial Spanish standards, with his mother's ancestry coming from the Canary Islands and his father's from the Basque country. His first American ancestor was also named Simón Bolívar, and he lived and worked with the governor of Santo Domingo in present-day Dominican Republic from 1559 to 1560. When the governor was reassigned to Venezuela in 1569, the elder Bolívar went with him, and from there the Bolívar family became prominent in the Venezuelan province and were granted estates, encomiendas, and political offices within the colonial government called the Cabildo. In the 17th century, Bolivar's grandfather, Juan de Bolivar y Martinez de Villegas, made a fortune in copper mining and applied for a patent of nobility with the Spanish crown. He did this by donating like 200,000, I don't know, whatever the currency was, pesos maybe, to a monastery who was supposed to like support his claim for nobility but it wasn't granted. Now, had the, pant- had the patent been granted, Bolivar's elder brother Juan Vicente would have become the Marquess of San Luis and the Viscount of Cororote. But by the time the lawsuits were in progress, Bolivar had already devoted his personal fortune to the revolution, and independence made the lawsuit moot. 
Bolivar, like many children of his social rank, was raised by servants and slaves. His nurse, his nurse was a slave named Hippolyta, and Bolivar called her the only mother I have known. There is a statue to Hippolyta in her birthplace of Valencia, Venezuela, erected in her honor by Simón Bolivar after one of his military victories. His father died of tuberculosis when he was three, and his mother died when he was nine. And after their deaths, Bolivar and Hippolyta were shuffled between caretakers and tutors. Bolivar was educated by renowned professors such as Andres Bello, Father Andujar, and Don Simon Rodriguez. Bello and Rodriguez were humanists who taught young Bolivar about the Enlightenment ideals of liberty and human rights, as well as subjects like sociology and politics. Don Simon Rodriguez was the more radical of Bolivar's mentors, and when Bolivar was 14, Rodriguez was forced to leave Venezuela after being accused of conspiracy against the Spanish government in Caracas. Soon after this, Bolivar entered the Milicias de Aragua and upon graduation was sent to Madrid to continue his military studies and receive a commission in the Spanish Imperial Army. He remained in Madrid until 1802 and then he traveled to France and in Paris he became swept up in the salons of the Parisian intelligentsia. In these salons, he listened to more Enlightenment rhetoric and also had a front row seat to watch Napoleon seize power in what was then Republican France. He saw the emperor's coronation at Notre Dame in 1804, and while he did not personally agree with the crowning, he admired Napoleon all the same and returned to Venezuela in 1808, intent on being the hero of a nationalist Republican revolution of his own. In order to understand why Bolivar's revolution succeeded where others had failed, one must understand the political, social, and economic history of the Spanish Empire and the Americas. And to understand that, one must have an understanding of the history of Spanish colonization of the Americas in general. Spain was an assortment of Christian kingdoms in the north and central part of the Iberian Peninsula, with the Umayyad Muslims ruling in the south. Modern Spain began to take shape in 1469 when Isabella, Queen of Castile, married Ferdinand, King of Aragon, and united two of the largest Catholic entities in the Iberian Peninsula. Together, they began the Reconquista and captured all of the remaining Muslim territories, forcing many Muslims and Jews to convert to Christianity and expelling all those who did not. 1492 marked the end of the Reconquista when the Emirate of Granada fell to the Christian forces. And 1492 is also the year that an Italian explorer that we know as Christopher Columbus finally got the approval of Isabella and Ferdinand to finance an expedition to find a western sea route to the Indies. Columbus had previously sought out the king of Portugal, but the king's advisors had pointed out the huge inaccuracies in Columbus's measurements, and also the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama had recently sailed around the southern tip of Africa, which provided the Portuguese with an eastern sea route to the Indies, so they had no reason to find a western sea route. However, Isabella and Ferdinand had lost a war with Portugal earlier, and as part of the peace treaty, surrendered supremacy of the Atlantic below the Canary Islands to the Portuguese. Now, Isabella and Ferdinand had a daughter, Joanna, who married the son of the Holy Roman Emperor, Philip, and had a son, Charles, 
When Charles was six, his father died and he inherited the Burgundian Netherlands, which is present-day Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and part of France. In 1516, he was crowned king of Spain, and in 1519, his paternal grandfather died and Charles became Archduke of Austria and, after some hefty bribes, was elected Holy Roman Emperor. Talk about being born on third base and hitting a home run. Now, the reason why I'm telling you about Isabella, Ferdinand, and their grandson, Charles, is because it is through these three monarchs that Spain begins its exploration of the Western Hemisphere. When Isabella and Ferdinand approved Columbus's voyage to find that Western sea route, they did so thinking that he would fail, and so they made large concessions to Columbus, including admiralty of the oceans and governorship of the Indies, as well as 90% of all treasure he managed to find. So when Columbus actually found what he thought was the Indies, Isabella and Ferdinand were understandably dismayed. Columbus ended up making three voyages, as we all know, the first of which landed him at Hispaniola. The second was mostly a supply run to keep the people he left on Hispaniola from dying of starvation. And the third and final voyage, Columbus found himself in the Bay of Perea and finally touched the South American mainland when he sailed up the Orinoco River and what is now Venezuela. Now, we all know what happens after these three voyages. He mistakenly thinks the Taino, Carib, and Arawak Amerindians are Indians, begins a genocide of these indigenous peoples, and eventually, after hearing about the atrocities Columbus and his men were committing on the Amerindians and Hispaniola, Ferdinand and Isabella recall Columbus, put him in chain, and void everything that they had promised him in the capitulations of Santa Fe. Columbus had also stopped in Lisbon, he's very messy, after his first voyage, and he told the king of Portugal all about the lands that he found. And so the king then decided to press his claim on these new lands based on the peace treaty from the war that Ferdinand and Isabella had lost to him. It touched off a flurry of negotiations, and after years of these, Spain and Portugal signed the Treaty of Tordesillas which, in addition to that latitudinal line below the Canary Islands, established a longitudinal line west of the Cape Verde Islands that essentially left all of North America and all but the Brazilian hump of South America free for Spanish colonization. Now, in the history of Europe, I think no one knows how to play themselves like the Portuguese do. After the Treaty of Tordesillas established what areas were free for Spanish colonization, a house of trade was established in Seville, Spain that sponsored and sanctioned voyages to the New World. It's kind of like one of the earliest examples of venture capitalism. So you have an explorer would draft a pitch for a voyage to the New World in search of riches, recruit men to join these expeditions with profit-sharing schemes, and then send that pitch to the House of Trade to have their voyages funded by the Spanish crown, provided they gave the crown one-fifth of all plunder. The House of Trade birthed the era of the conquistador, with men like Francisco Pizarro and Hernan Cortes following in Columbus' footsteps by claiming the lands they encountered. I'm trying not to use the words found or discovered in the name of the Spanish crown, and then using a combination of brutal forced labor 
disease and guns to decimate the Amerindian populations of the Inca and Aztec empires, respectively. The most lucrative plunder being, uh, ended up being primarily silver with large mines found in the 1500s in Peru and Mexico. And the royal fifth from all of that made the Spanish Habsburgs insanely wealthy. Charles V, who you would think would be content with the massive amounts of land he had already inherited, used this influx of silver coming in from the Americas to finance his never-ending wars against France. To ensure the steady influx of silver and other riches that might be traded from the Spanish territories, Charles V deployed audiencias, which are governing councils of leaders that carried out legislative and judicial decrees of the empire and also making sure that, you know, the British or the French or whoever weren't getting their cut. These audiencias were so important to the functioning of the empire that after independence, they became the capital cities of Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. Later on, Spanish America was divided into the Viceroyalty of New Spain, which governed all of Spanish North America and the Philippines, and the Viceroyalty of Peru, which governed all of Spanish South America. So after the conquistadors come the pencil pushers, and after the pencil pushers come the monks. Several Catholic orders set up missions throughout the Viceroyalties with the intent of Christianizing the Amerindians. This led to the development of the encomienda system, where an order of, say, Capuchin monks or a Spanish colonizer would take a group of Amerindians under their protection and then force them to work on the land. They were supposed to ensure the religious education of the Amerindians, but mostly they just worked them to death. Bartolome de las Casas was a Dominican friar who wrote about these atrocities being committed on the Amerindians, which later prompted Charles V to reform the encomienda system in 1542 with the new laws of the Indies for the good treatment and preservation of the Indians, or simply the new laws. Historians call De Las Casas the protector of the Indians, but I only remember him as the man who suggested importing African slaves to Spanish South America to replace the staggering numbers of Amerindians the Spanish had already worked to death. So, thanks for nothing, Bartolome de las Casas. I hope you rot in hell. With the establishment of the encomiendas and later African slavery to Spanish America, a race-based social and legal hierarchy developed. Among the first waves of African slaves and Spanish settlers, not many women were present, and so gradually the three races, Spanish, African, and Amerindian, began to mix. In order to maintain political and social supremacy, the Spanish enacted a racial code that divided people by how much Spanish blood they did or did not have. Something interesting that I learned as I was researching this episode was that the Muslims and Jews who left Spain during the Reconquista sometimes settled in Spanish South America and in the West Indies to avoid the Inquisition. Those that had converted were called conversos, and many Spanish Catholics did not accept them. In 1499, Spain passed a series of statutes that severely restricted the rights of conversos, and a large part of the Inquisition involved something called the limpieza de sangre, which means cleanliness of blood, 
which require all Spaniards to verify whether or not they were conversos or descended from conversos since the laws prohibited a Muslim Jew or converso from testifying against a Spanish Christian holding ecclesiastical office or holding public office. Many conversos went to the New World to escape the Inquisition and the Limpieza de Sangre, but eventually the statutes caught up to them there, and for Criollos, who were Europeans born in the New World, proving the cleanliness of their blood was of, of the utmost importance. So at the top of this hierarchy, you have the Peninsulares, Spaniards born in Spain. Then right under them were the Criollos, who were also Spaniards but born in the Americas. Next were the Mestizos, the offspring of an Amerindian woman and a Spanish man. All of these classifications were determined by the race of the father in Spanish America. So if an Amerindian had any Spanish blood, they were free from forced labor on the encomiendas. So this provided an incentive for Amerindian women to have children with Spanish settlers so that their children could be born into a higher social caste and not have to live on the encomienda. Next were the mulattoes, quadroons, and octoroons, which encompassed any mix of Spanish and African blood. Collectively, these groups were called pardos, and pardo took on a similar meaning in Portuguese Brazil. After them were the sambos, who were African and Amerindian, and then the full-blooded Indians, free blacks, and lastly, African slaves. Simón Bolívar, as a criollo, occupied one of the highest ranks in Spanish-American society, yet his upbringing by Ippolita, who occupied the lowest, combined with his Enlightenment ideas on human rights, made him a staunch abolitionist for his entire life. A large part of why Bolívar's revolution was successful was because of his belief in the equality of the races, and while he did not live long enough to see this practice actually instituted in Gran Colombia, this belief is pervasive in the colorblind attitudes that you might see in South America today. Next episode, a series of wars in Europe helped develop a distance between Spain and her colonies, and many men guided by Enlightenment principles, the American and Haitian revolutions, and Napoleon's conquest of Europe developed nationalist sentiments that the Spanish are not able to squash. Join me next time for more...